Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. And welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here. As always, another week has gone by. We're heading into a Premier League weekend. We play Leicester City away from home. That is going to be uh, a tricky game, but we go into it on the back of a 2-0 win in midweek uh, against Leeds in the Carabao Cup, keeping the momentum going a bit. We'll be talking a bit about that later on with our uh, second guest of the day, James Benj from CBS Sports. will be along to talk uh, some of that midweek action as well as some of the bits and pieces that have been doing the rounds in the football world this week. But before we get to James, we do have another guest and a very special guest it is too, which is why I'm just going to crack on with today's show with Minimal Waffle. He is a man who played over 560 games for Arsenal. He lifted eight major trophies and he kept countless clean sheets. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Arscast, David Seaman. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. Yeah, good. Good. Listen, you have been recently doing some work with the club. Uh, there are some pictures of you um, at the training ground. What exactly was going on there? I mean, how did that come about? Um, well, it came about through uh, an invite that I had from a long time ago. Um, I was doing a photo shoot at the, at the training ground, and then some of the uh, the youth team coaches came in and asked if I'd be interested in going in. And this was pre-COVID, um, you know, and I said, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd look forward to that, you know, and then nothing happened for a while. And then luckily I met my two ex-physios in Gary and Colin Lewin on uh, doing soccer aid. Um, and they asked if I'd been in. I said, no, I said, I've not, I've not heard anything. And then they got in touch with Pear and then Pear got in touch with me. And then, and now it's, um, it's something that I do, you know, whenever I get a chance, um, I'm just going in like mentoring, just watching and just 
you know, if they want to ask me any questions, then it's, it's fine. You know, I've, I've got a lot inside of here that, that could be used for someone. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. Plenty of experience. I mean, it, it, it sounds fairly informal. So are you working with, you know, let's say the, the uh, younger players, the uh, the youth team players? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the under-18s, the under-23s, you know, all, all at the training ground. And then sometimes I go over to uh, to the first team as well and watch them and mm. You know, and if they want to, if they want to ask me any questions, or if I spot anything, um, they, they want me to uh, to interrupt and and just, you know, if I, if I see anything that's worthwhile, then then say it. You know, don't, don't just go there and watch. You know, I'm there for I'm there for help. You know, mm. they they know that. You know, if they need anything, you know, if they need to talk to me about how to deal with certain situations, and you know, I've got a lot of experience. That is true. I mean, there is. Um, uh, we can talk about the, the technical aspects of goalkeeping, um, which I think have changed over the years. You know, the way that the position has, has um, modernized, if you like, over the, the years has been quite interesting. But I suppose one aspect of it as well is is the mental side of it. Is that something where you feel like you can really contribute? Because if you make a mistake, for example, as a goalkeeper, I'm sure it can get um, on top of you pretty quickly. But you've still mm-hmm. got maybe 85 minutes or 60 minutes or a whole game to to play after that is that something where you feel like you could bring a lot to the to the young players and also the first team goalkeepers yeah a, a little bit yeah you know especially the youngsters because you know they've never experienced you know the the pressures you know that I have and, and you know, people like Bern and, and Aaron um you know playing in the first team for Arsenal is 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 massive you know mm. the pressure is huge um Aaron's now doing it with England as well you know so he's taking it step by step and and yeah, like you say, it's uh, it is a big part of it because if you make that mistake in the first five minutes, can you control yourself? Can you deal with it and then still perform? You know, I've seen I've seen Pickford do it. I've, I've seen him do it. You know, make a mistake in the first five minutes, but then went on to be man of the match. You know, when I see something like that, I think to myself, well, mentally, he's he's really tough. You know, and he can handle it. And you know, where where do you get that mental toughness from? Mm. Um, and that's that's hard, you know. And but you've got to have things in place so that you know when you do make that mistake, don't then start thinking, "Oh, I've got to make a save," or "Or I've got to take a cross to to recover from that yeah. mistake." You know, it's not you, because if you start thinking, "I've got to do this," then you'll end up making another mistake. You know, it's, it's building it brick by brick, just little bits, even even to the point of like when the ball comes to you, make sure that even if it's a throw or a kick. You know, that it's, that it's on target. It's where you want it to go. It doesn't have to be a, a big match-winning save. Mm. It can be anything that just builds up that confidence again. And, yeah, with, with goalkeepers, a lot of it is mental because you just you just stood there. You're waiting. The ball has to come to you. You can't go and get the ball. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> you know, is... So that, that's the tough part about it. You know, and it's, it does take some getting used to, but the more you play, and I've always said to the goalkeepers, you need to play. I said, you can't be training all your career. You've, you have got to play because there's so many different decisions come up in a match and that don't happen in training. You know, So the more experience you get, the better you'll be. How closely allied is you know that character, that ability to compartmentalise a mistake and deal with you know, the pressure that you know, like there's 60,000 eyes looking at you who've just made a mistake. But how close is that with your technical ability like confidence in your ability as a goalkeeper to do the things that a goalkeeper has to do catching kicking punching making the saves distributing the ball I mean you could have all the character and personality in the world but if you can't do that part of it it doesn't really matter no you've got to have the technical side of it there's no doubt about that and and that can be coached 
you know, when you, you see goalkeepers, they love just doing, I call it kick catch. You know, we kick it at each other, catch it, you know, and just through catching it, you know, like just here, round about here, just catching it all the time, your confidence grows. And then, then you do drills in training where you have to come out of training with confidence. And Bob Wilson, my my coach at Arsenal for, what, 15 years or so, mm. he uh, he was brilliant at that, you know, of giving me confidence in training. Yeah, I would, we would be doing drills and I would make a save, a really good save within two or three shots. And he'd be like, all right, out, that's it, next one in. You know, so then you go out of that session feeling really confident. And Bob was brilliant at that. Um, you know, and goalkeepers, they, they build confidence in training. You can tell. You can tell when a goalkeeper is, is is looking really good because they start making saves and they feel good about it. You know, and then obviously on the other side, you know, there's, there's goalkeepers that, that let mistakes in. And then even in training, you can spot whether it's affecting them or not. You know, and that tells you how they're going to be able to cope in a matchday situation. Is that something that you can, you know, if a player or a person is that way inclined where where things get on top of them, is, I mean, that must be a really slow process to try and build them to the point where they can deal with situations like that. Because I get, you know, every personality is different. Every character is different. Some people can make a mistake and just go, okay, look, that happened. I'm going to get on with it. Others maybe shrink a little or they feel guilty. They feel like they've let the team or the fans down, whatever it might be. You know, that must take some time to sort of readjust or recalibrate their mindset. It, it does. And, you know, trust me, I, I did it obviously in the World Cup in 2002. And, you know, I was, I've got tons of experience, but mm. it still affected me. You know, afterwards I was so emotional, you know, because of what exactly what you just said. You feel like you've let everyone down. Um, but it's it's something that, especially nowadays, a lot of the, the goalkeepers and a lot of the players, they see uh, sports psychologists and they've got tools in place to, to try and deal with it. You know, but I think more than anything, you're born with that sort of character. You know, mm. and especially if, you, if you've made the choice of being a goalkeeper, then you've got that sort of character. <laughs> Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting, though, when you talk about that, you you think about the two goalkeepers that Arsenal have at the moment, Aaron Ramsdale and and Bernd Leno. They seem to me, anyway, to be quite different characters. I mean, Ramsdale is is a bit more outward. Leno, much more quietly efficient. I mean, is there, is there, I mean, there's the old adage about goalkeepers needing to be a little bit crazy. But I mean, is there a one size fits all uh, kind of thing where goalkeepers, you know, some guys can be this, some guys can be that. There is a difference between the two fellas at Arsenal right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you look at you look at like when I was playing, there was me, you know, who looked calm and, and assured and mm. confident. And then you look at Peter Schmeichel, you know, who was so animated, and that's that's how he got the best out of himself is being so angry with other people. Mm. But that's two totally different ways of being a goalkeeper, and we both did okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but like you say, but with Aaron and uh, and and Lino, Ben Lino, it's. Um, Two totally different characters. Aaron loves to be more vocal, you know, and shouting to his defenders, whereas Bern seems to just get on with his game. But it's two different ways of being a goalkeeper, you know, and you can't say, well, that's right and that's wrong. Yeah. You know, because Bern's, Bern's career speaks for itself. You know, he's been at Arsenal for quite a while now. And, and to be fair, you know, he's done quite well. You know, it's just that Aaron's got in and he's, and he's really took on to it. You know, he's, um, he's showing confidence. The fans love him. You know, even after when he first signed, you know, the fans were questioning, you know, why have we spent that much money, especially when Martinez left to go to um, to Villa, you know, and it was it was a really tough time for him. And I, and I put it out on Twitter. I said, look, you know, I had this when I first came to Arsenal. I took over from a fan's favourite in John Lukey. 
And the fan, the Arsenal fans were saying to me when I was at QPR, you'll never play for Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, I bet I do. <laughs> Have you been surprised by how quickly Ramsdale has, has changed people's minds? I think, you know, to be fair, I think there was sort of a general, not distrust, but I think people needed to be convinced that the club were you know, doing smart business because there have been some deals in the not-too-distant past which haven't appeared to be that smart. So there was some skepticism about, well, if we're going to bring in a, a young goalkeeper, he's played for Bournemouth and he's got relegated. He played for Sheffield United. He got relegated. And it, clearly, there's a lot more to a team getting relegated than just the goalkeeper. Yeah. So it's not just on him. But are you surprised with how quickly he has managed to to turn that situation around and, and to even get in the team. I mean, I think we all thought that when Arsenal spent 20-odd million pounds on a goalkeeper, they weren't spending it on a number two goalkeeper. They were spending yep. it on somebody who had who they thought at least could really, really push for that number one position. But it, it happened a bit more quickly than, than I thought it would uh, and that many people thought it would. And, you know, things can change very quickly in football, as we know. But it, it feels like there's no looking back at this point. Yeah, you know, and he's, he's come in and, like you say, he's, he looks confident. But that, that goes back to what I was saying about goalkeepers they need to play. You know, Aaron's had a full season at Bournemouth playing in the top division, a full season at Sheffield United playing in the top division. You know, mm. so he's got all that experience behind him. So it's not a massive step to come in and play at Arsenal, but it's, it's still a big step because Arsenal's such a big club. And um, he's, he's done it with confidence. He's done it with his own style. And I think that's what the fans love. You know, he... he he likes to get the fans involved, especially before the games, you know, and he's, mm. he's very animated and he's always shouting. And, you know, so I think the fans just took to him easily because plus the fact that he was making saves as well. And then the results started to change. You know, the team started to play better. We started getting a few wins behind our belt. And then, you know, it, it, that that all all them little bits just add to everything. And and the fans have got total confidence in him now. Seeing him on the training ground, what, what has impressed you most about the way that he plays. He is very vocal. He is animated. He does G people up uh, and all of that kind of stuff. But you've got to match that with your goalkeeping uh, skills as well. So on the training ground and in the games, is there one aspect of his game in particular which has really impressed you? From from what I've seen in training, his his foot speed. His foot speed is so fast. You know, and... It's, it's something that a lot of people won't really notice, but if you watch him, his, his feet are like pitter patter all the time. They're not making big strides, and then that helps him to be able to push either way. Um, you know, that's one of the first things that I noticed about him was how fast he was, um, and he just seems to be getting better and better because you know he's got some good coaches at Arsenal who you know, are teaching him well. Mm. But he's at the end of the day, it's it's about how he performs as a goalkeeper. And, you know, you, you can't, you just have to put your hands up and say he's doing brilliantly, which he is, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. He's making big saves as well, you know, at crucial times in games. You know, even the Tottenham game when he made the save, pushed it onto the crossbar, yeah. which was a really vital save. Okay, there wasn't much time left, but 3-2, then that's a, bit, yeah. a little bit of a different story. But he's just, he's just played so well, you know, and, and that's why. You know, me and the fans love him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would have made those final few minutes a bit more hairy than we would have liked, for sure, in the yeah. North London derby. When, when you talk about foot speed, are you talking in particular about, you know, the way that he travels across his area, the way that he moves to position himself? And does that also take into account what he does on the ball? Because I think we've seen 
something of an evolution over the last number of years at Arsenal. Petr Cech came in, and when you think yeah. about it now, with, with all due respect to him, he feels like something of a throwback. And, and when he arrived at Chelsea, he was a phenomenal goalkeeper and, and felt really yeah. modern, came to Arsenal... The playing out from the back thing didn't really suit him. And then Bernd Leno came in and, you know, he, he felt like an upgrade in that aspect of the game. For sure, he was more comfortable on the ball. But what we're seeing with Aaron Ramsdale is this, it was like another level to it where the, the sorts of passes that he is making into midfield, playing people down the line, the accuracy of his, and speed, I think, as well, of his um, mid-to-long distribution is is really another step uh, forward again. So does that all come back to this foot speed thing? Is that just natural yeah. ability with, with the ball at his feet? Yeah, it comes back to the foot speed. It comes back to confidence. You know, and the, the other thing, the main thing is he's, he's what, 23 now? Mm. And he's he's been coached that way. You know, he's been coached to be able to play with, with the ball at his feet. You know, when, when Czech went in, it was so obvious that he hadn't been coached that way. If I'd have gone in, I would have looked like Petr Czech. <laughs> <laughs> you bought. I would have made the decision not to do it early. You know, yeah. I wouldn't embarrass myself that much for so long. You know, it was it was tough to watch, you know, because you think you'd, you've obviously been told you've got to do it this way, but it's not your, not the best part of his game. You know, mm. Petr Czech was a fantastic goalkeeper. Um, you know, but he's sad because people remember that, you know, because it, it, it didn't look comfortable for him. But in Aaron, you've got a guy that's been coached, or Burnt's been coached that way as well. You know, if if, if I had to deal with the, the new back pass rule, I'm sure they can deal with playing the ball out from the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is it. This is the evolution of the position as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I want to ask you a little bit about the sort of dynamic that now exists at Arsenal, where Aaron Ramsdale is the number one for now, but Bernd Leno, who's a hugely experienced goalkeeper and international for Germany, he is in the number two position. But... How long can that last when you've got two goalkeepers of that quality and that caliber? And, and goalkeeper in particular is a position where if you can help it, you don't really rotate. So it makes yeah. it a little more difficult for clubs to build their squads and, and to, like everyone wants, if something happens to Aaron Ramsdale, you want a good slash great goalkeeper to come in and take his place. But it's very, very difficult to keep two really, really good goalkeepers happy at any one club, isn't it? It, it is, and and it's hard. It's um, it's a decision that's tough to make, you know. Because, like you say, so as in Burnt's situation, he's not going to be happy. He's not going to be happy not playing. Um, he's going to be wanting to play. You know, if it's somewhere else, then you can understand. Um, you know, it's a bit like with the Martinez situation. You know, he wanted to be a number one, mm. um, and that's that's why he went to Villa. Um, I think. It's tough to try and keep them happy as both of them because, like you know, we, as we saw with the, the game against Leeds, you know, Burnt went in there, still really, really great standard. But that's the only time he's going to play, maybe FA Cup or the League Cup. Mm. And um, you know, for someone like that, I would imagine that that's quite frustrating for him. But if if Mikel Arteta can keep them both happy, then that's brilliant. But you know, I think that might be a different situation come January or, or maybe next summer. How? You know, we, we talked about Aaron Ramsdale being very vocal and, and talking a lot. How how much does that depend on the kind of players that you're playing behind? So you, you talked, obviously, throughout your career, you were a very calm goalkeeper. How much did it allow you to remain calm when you had that back four? 
playing yeah, the in front back, of the you. The back four were brilliant. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt about that. You know, Lee Dixon, Tony Adams, Steve Paul, Mike Fionn, and then Nigel Winterburn as well. Mm. You know, they, they were brilliant. And it weren't through luck or anything like that. It was through sheer hard work. You know, yeah. the amount of drills that George Graham used to put that back four through was, was amazing. But it worked. You know, then having that in front of you, when they know where, every, if somebody moves out of position, they cover for each other. They knew everything about each other. Mm. And for me, it was easy because, you know, I would just have to like shout whether there'd be a runner or whether like man on, you know, they've got to get marked quick, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was quite easy for me to talk to them. And mm. that's what I liked. I didn't used to start, I didn't used to keep talking when the ball was like maybe halfway line or even a bit further away because if you keep talking too much, they switch off. You know, what I yeah, used yeah. to do is I wait till the ball got close, you know, in and around the area. And then that's when I would start doing my commands, you know, and they like that. You know, they did. Tony said to me, he says, I don't like a goalkeeper that's shouting all the time, you know, so then you learn, you learn what to do. And it's different, obviously, for, for Aaron Ramsdale, because I think he's coming into a, de- a defensive unit, which is a bit more... Well, you know, it's it's newer, it's developing. We're seeing some partnerships develop. Ben White and, and Gabriel yeah. look quite good together. Kieran Tierney spends most of his time in the in the opposition half, getting forward and bombing <laughs> down the left. And we have Tommy Asu at right back. So I think his role in in being an organizer, somebody who's um, going to glue that together, is quite interesting. It is, you know, and he and he, he'll learn. And like I say, he's only what twenty three, mm. so he's, he's still really young. But he will learn to tell players, you know, sometimes to just sit back, you know, or or maybe get Thomas Partey to just sit in front of the defenders, you know, mm. and give these sort of commands when you're in a match situation and when you can feel that we're under pressure a little bit. We used to do it a lot with Patrick. Mm. Patrick Vieira would be like, I'd, I'd say to Tony, Tony, get Patrick to sit in front for 10 minutes while we're under all this pressure. And, and you know, little stuff like that, that used to go on all around the, the defence. And, um, and Aaron's got, he, he'll learn that. Um, you know, but it, it comes to experience and mm. then in gaining his confidence, you know, because now at the moment he's in the team and he's like, he's loving playing in the team. But then he's, then he'll he'll take that another step further by, you know, not just being in the team, but affecting the team as well. We have a couple of questions from our uh, from our listeners who are on our, our Discord and Lowy133 wants to know, as one of the best penalty savers of all time, how would you deal with the new style of penalties where the taker waits for the keeper to move? And did you have stats like modern goalkeepers? No, I never had any stats. Um, <laughs> I just used to take it off the cuff. The, the angle at which they approached the ball decided to me, to me which way I would go. Mm. And it's, but what I would wait for is, you watch the penalty takers, they come in, they come in looking at you, but at the last second, they look down to strike the ball. And as soon as they look down, that's when I would go. Right. And with the guys that, that hesitate, just stand up, wait for them. You know, because the, the, the guys that do that are the best penalty takers. You, you look at Jorginho at Chelsea, he's mm. brilliant at that. You know, but you've got to learn. You've got to watch and watch what he does. You know, it's, it's on TV. It's there for you to see. You know, and then you think, what else can I do that might make him miss it? You know, don't just try and take him on at what he does because he's brilliant at it. But do something different, like throw a dummy and go the other way. You know, yeah. throw two dummies and go, you know, all that. You know, just watch it on TV and watch and see what else you could do as a goalkeeper. Was was that something you did, uh, you know, study penalty takers? Yeah, I studied them a little bit. Um you know, because it was back in the day, the only different penalty you would get would be like the chip down the middle. I remember Dwight York doing me like that when he was playing for Villa. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, my, my, like you say, my record in penalties and penalty shootouts was, was quite good. And, you know, I was pretty 
consistent at going the right way. Um, but it's just, it was just one of those things. It was just about, I kept watching penalties, kept looking at the angle they approached the ball and then thinking, yeah, that, that's going to work. And luckily for me, it worked quite a few times. It did all right. I remember many of them. Uh, General, <laughs> General Baez says, who was the toughest to play against during training at Arsenal? Oh, the toughest players in training. Martin Keown, all day long. He was a nutter. Would he even terrorise <laughs> you? Yeah, you know, but not really, you know, but he was he was tough to play against. You mm. know, and people like like Patrick would always come in and like, if I went up for a cross, he would always be there like messing about, but elbowing me and stuff like that. You know, so in, in training, it was a little bit different, but Thierry was always brilliant in training, you know, because he was brilliant on the pitch as well. You yeah. know? And you've got people like Dennis Bergkamp that could put it in from anywhere around your, your penalty area. Um, you know, so there's people like that. But I, I tell you, really, really impressed me when he first came was Nicholas and Elka. Oh, when yeah. he came as a 17-year-old, he was frighteningly good. And it was so raw, it was great to see. It was great to see Tony Adams and Steve Bold trying to kick him. <laughs> and they still couldn't catch him. <laughs> and he had amazing power, because I remember that first goal that he scored in the game against Manchester United. It was one of those shots from the edge of the box that absolutely flew past uh, yeah. Peter Schmeichel. He, he you had, know. Yeah, he did. He, he had what you call the short back lift. You know, yeah. So he didn't really wind up, but he could generate so much power in, in, in a little amount of space with his foot. And he was... Mm. He was he was special. He was he was better than Thierry when he first came. Obviously, wow. Thierry developed into a, a much better player. Um, and Nicholas, you know, didn't stay at the club long enough for me. But um, yeah, Nicholas Anelka was some player. Johnny B A F C says, "What's your favourite save?" And I think we have to leave aside the Sheffield United one, which of course is an amazing <laughs> yeah. one. So, what's your second yeah. favourite save? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously, my, my Sheffield United save was, was amazing. And, and I was 39 when I made that save, you know, so it was really self-pleasing for me. Yeah. Um, second favourite, oh, I tell you what I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the penalty shootout at Sampdoria. Yeah. And I said, I say three penalties, you know, that, that was special. Um, you know, and I've got great photographs afterwards where the lads have like lifted me up onto their shoulders and carried me across the, uh, across the pitch to the Arsenal fans, you know, so stuff like that is just amazing and it's just great memories. I've got so many good memories of winning trophies, you know, and it's something that's just so pleasing. I remember that penalty shootout against Sampdoria because I was working on a radio station in Tipperary and it was mid nineties, obviously. And I was supposed to be, you know, concentrating on my radio show, but I had the TV on in the studio. I was watching that uh, penalty shootout. So uh, I may have made a mistake or two in terms of the uh, songs or the things that I said on the radio that night, but more than, more than worth it. Before we go, <laughs> before we go, I mean, you're doing a podcast now called Seaman Says. So before I ask you a little bit about, you know, what, what you're doing exactly, are you enjoying doing that? Because that is, you know, something a little bit different where you're uh, talking to people you've spoken to, obviously some former teammates and, and great people yeah. from the world of football. How do you find that in general? Yeah, I find I'm quite enjoying it, you know, surprisingly, you know, because when I was first asked to do it, which was to cover the Euros, I thought, you know, there's going to be a lot to talk about, obviously, with England. Mm. And then it developed, you know, and, it, and then they asked me to do the, the the whole season. So, you know, it's been great. You know, like you say, I've had, I've had a lot of my teammates, like, you know, Lee, Tony, um, Wrighty, Nigel. Lots, lots of, of my teammates have been on there. Got a few good surprise names coming up later as well. You know, so it's um, it's just something that I'm getting into and I'm enjoying it the more and more that I do it. 
Have you got a dream guest that you would like to to have on the show? Um, a dream guest would have been someone like Sebi Ballesteros, who was my my childhood hero. You know, I just loved the way that he uh, he handled himself and, and mm. the competitive spirit that he had. Um, you know, so he would have been my dream my dream guest. But um, yeah, there's there's a few coming up. You know, you have to you have to you have to subscribe to see who it is. You know, but you'll, you'll be surprised with some of the names. <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to that. The podcast is called Seaman Says. You can get it wherever you get podcasts. We'll put links to the show and the Twitter and everything else uh, in the show notes on this one. But uh, for now, we'll leave it there. David Seaman, thank you very much. A pleasure to talk to you. Cheers. Thanks very much. Well, hope you enjoyed that. It was great to talk to David Seaman. You can find him on Twitter at the David Seaman at the David Seaman. But of course, the podcast is called Seaman Says. Twitter for that is at Seaman Podcast. And the website, you can find it on is seamansays.co.uk. Of course, you can get the, uh, the pod wherever you get podcasts. You know the drill. Just, uh, pick your favorite podcasting app, search for Seaman Says and subscribe to hear guests like Ian Wright, Tony Adams, Lee Dixon, John Bond. Barnes, Peter Schmeichel, and loads more besides. So thank you very much indeed to him for his time. Thank you as well to Pascal Hughes and also to Callum Marks uh, for helping me organize that. It was a great chat, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks to you two for your help in making it happen. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Okay, joining me now on the Arscast to talk about some bits and bobs that have been going on in the football world in general, and of course, Arsenal from CBS Sports, it's James Benj. Hi, James. 
Hi, Andrew. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. I want to talk a bit about um, managers. And obviously, Mikel Arteta has been a manager in the spotlight for, for a while, uh, for various reasons. Everybody knows what they are. And this week, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was a manager in the spotlight for very obvious reasons, as Manchester United got absolutely, well, Tottenham-style battered, you would say, uh, by Liverpool at Old Trafford. And there was talk about whether he's the right man for the job and Gary Neville on Sky afterwards was like, I never call for a manager to be sacked. And I thought this was quite an interesting thing because I don't remember necessarily that being such a such an issue before when managers have been underperforming. Pundits have often said, well, they're not going to come out and say, look, he should be sacked. Some of them will, but like for the most part, people couch their words. But mm. I've never understood quite why people within the game of football themselves take umbrage at things like this. I'll give you a couple of examples. Phil Neville uh, responded to uh, a tweet from Miguel Delaney. Miguel said something along the lines of, this is a sacking offence, or this should be a sacking offence, based on the United performance against Liverpool. And Phil Neville Neville replied saying, I feel good tweeting that, do you? And there was another bit this week where he said, we live in an era where it's seen as quite normal to ask people to be sacked, which I find absolutely incredible. If you're in Uh, If you were in any other workplace and you walked into a shop and you said, I want you to be sacked, I think you would be reported to to the police. Now, (laughs) clearly there's a slight difference between just walking into a shop and, you know, taking aim at a shopkeeper and, you know, fans who go to a stadium when they pay season ticket prices and all that kind of stuff. It's it's a little bit of a different thing. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on, on you know, there's a mates thing going on here with Phil Neville and Solskjaer and all that. But, but in general, where is the line between what a pundit can and can't say or should and shouldn't say about a manager who's, who's um, perhaps underperforming or definitely underperforming? No, he's definitely underperforming. I mean, we, I, I suppose you just want people to be honest in their opinions and perhaps Gary Neville's opinion on um, on Oligula Solskjaer is that yes you know he's not playing well but but he still believes he should be in the in the job mm. but I think the issue with with Neville's punditry on Sunday and obviously it is n- nearly uniformly excellent I think and you know he is he is someone that we all learn a lot from when he speaks but was that you got the sense he was kind of arguing against against what he probably thought deep down, but just against everything that was being presented to him. And he was not engaging with the issue. I think it was very interesting that, that Carragher and Sooness kept saying to him, look, we're not asking, we're not, we're not trying to bait you into saying this manager should be sacked. And I, I do understand the hesitancy of, of having that conversation because, and, and Arsenal fans, I think, should understand better than anyone else because it's only four or five years ago that we were, we were sort of having these internal and external conversations about Arsene Wenger and how uncomfortable it feels asking for any manager to be sacked. But particularly, I think, with Wenger, it was very tough because he's someone that people have in, invested emotionally an awful lot in. Obviously, that's, you know, this is different with Solskjaer. He is a man who, who kind of lucked into a job, um, has had some success, but ultimately has probably not taken a team where he should go. And I think the frustration there was almost that, that that Neville was looking for reasons to not tell the truth. I mean, the, the one thing that really stood out to me was when he said, you know, I don't know what the coaches do all day, um, so I can't judge them on that. But you go, well, everything that the coaches do builds towards the performance on the pitch. Mm. You know, this is the equivalent of, you know, let's take it back to Phil Neville's supermarket metaphor. You know, everything that your checkout staff does 
that builds towards how they do your groceries. And if, you know, if Manchester United are continually not performing on the pitch, of course you can, you know, there are, there are other factors that will influence that, but ultimately that responsibility there lies on the coaching staff. So you, you can't sort of say, I don't see what they're doing day to day, so I can't hold them responsible when what they do day to day is designed to maximise performances on the pitch. I, I, it's, uncom- it's, it's awkward having the conversation where you, or, or writing the piece or saying the words, you know, I think a manager should be sacked. Um, I went as close, personally, I went as close as I thought I would want to go to that conversation with Mikel Arteta uh, after the Villarreal game. And, I, you know, personally, I still have doubts about whether mm. he's the right manager. But it, 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 I think the one thing is, you know, when you say that, you probably can't really take it back. You will, you know. You can admit it, you're wrong, though. Let's say, yeah, you know, let's say it all goes, you know, swimmingly from here on in. And I'm not saying it, it, it's going to. And I think, you know, most people listening to this, you know, have, have seen what's going on. And, and you can have doubts about what's going on at Arsenal over Mikel Arteta to varying degrees, of course. But, you know, there's no reason why if things go brilliantly, you can say, well, you know what? I got that wrong. I feel like there's sort of a reluctance at times to do that, in particular in a in an industry where things can change really, really quickly. You know, you can go from being quite assured in your position to absolutely teetering on the brink. And that's a reality, I think, that most of the people who work in football, particularly as managers and coaches, will understand how cutthroat the industry is. Like the old, um, what do you call it, the, the boardroom... Uh, what is it where the chairman comes out and says that we've got faith in the manager? Oh, the dreaded vote of confidence. The dreaded vote of confidence. This is not a new invention. That has been in, that's been in football for as long as I can remember. So there is this understanding among everybody who works in football that this is the reality of the game. That that your your job, which could be perfectly um, safe, in two months' time, you could be absolutely on the brink of sack because results or performances just aren't there. When push comes to shove, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be paid millions of pounds to go away. You know, it, one sympathises with Solskjaer's emotional investment. And when I when I put this out on Twitter, I didn't get the, get many people agreeing with me, but I, I thought it was quite sad seeing Solskjaer look so devastated uh, when he was walking down the touchline. It might have been like funny at two, three nil at five. It was like, oh, I don't like watching this anymore. I, I thought it was very funny, but that's, you know, we're, we're different people, James, and we can. <laughs> but, it, but in the end, he is going to, you know, he's going to pocket several million pounds for, to, to, to not be Manchester United manager anymore, which when you kind of go back to what Phil Neville's saying, you know, if you get sacked, most people, when they get sacked from their jobs, do not receive the vast majority of their contract paid out to them in full. Like mm. Solskjaer, let's be honest, will when he gets sacked it's and that, that i think that's one of the things that maybe pundits and people talking about this do need to understand when they're in the world of football that the you know the real world out there is very different that a lot of people especially over the last 18 months have probably been clinging on to uh, have been clinging on to jobs quite tenuously and really worrying about where the next paycheck's coming from and they would have loved loved for someone to to pay them to not work and to go and find a new job. Um, I think that that side of it, is, it gets really forgotten. Yes, it's it's sad for a manager when they lose their job. And, you know, it's sad to see what people were saying about Steve Bruce. Um, and it does go too far. And it goes too far with what some people say about Solskjaer. 
but you don't you don't you shouldn't be coming into the job blind to that mm. you, know, you shouldn't be coming into any public facing job blind to the fact that this is 2021 and there are some nasty people out there who will take valid criticism way beyond that sure. into abusive territory yeah well i mean and and that's not to condone abuse and i know that's not what you're saying at mm. all it is um, an unfortunate reality i don't think it's a pleasant thing and i don't think it's something that necessarily should be tolerated but it is the reality of of football that you you do have a, a public facing job and i think the the interesting aspect of it is like it's not like you have to stand up on a soapbox and demand that this fraud be beheaded in front of the old Trafford crowd you know let him pay for his many sins that he has inflicted upon them you know by getting them to second place last year and ultimately being the former manager of Cardiff who isn't quite good enough to be manager of Manchester United heaven forbid who could have seen that coming but you know you can say things and you can have an opinion and you can have a strong opinion on something but you can you can elicit or you can um, elucidate that quite quite um, respectfully, you know. And I think that sometimes is the thing that 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 um, people can't quite get their head around. That by saying something, you don't have to be super hyper aggressive about it. You can mm. literally say, "Well, I think he's taken this job as far as he can take it." The natural the natural consequence of that is that somebody else has has got to come in. You don't have to call for him to be sacked, but you can have the opinion which basically um, backs that up, you know? And even calling for him to be sacked, I wouldn't necessarily consider that to be an attack on an individual. You know, Mm. I think there there was an appropriate time where it was fair to call for Antonio Conte to be sacked at Chelsea in that second year because things weren't working. And... You know, we all know when we talk about football that there are sometimes bigger, you know, there are bigger decisions that you might like to take that might address things. You know, everyone quite often will blame the players, but we, we all know you can't sack the playing staff. You can't just go, these players, we replace the, the players en masse. Mm. And that, that fundamentally, you know, the whole world of football knows that in the end, part of the job of being manager is that you're quite often the one that carries the can for structural issues, for decisions that weren't made by you. You know, one might argue that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to lose the job he's got because he was handed probably not the player he needed, a defensive midfielder. He's not alone in making these decisions. And then he was sort of tasked with dealing with making Cristiano Ronaldo work in 2021, which is actually a lot more difficult mm. with him than it than it looks considering his goal return. You know, that's part part of the job of being a manager is that you have to accept that you're you're the one that carries the can for decisions and mistakes you haven't made, and therefore, you know I've said Arsenal, uh, Man United should should sack Solskjaer. It's not just Solskjaer's fault, but he's also the the, the one thing that you can change immediately yeah. that might have a an immediate impact. Yeah, I suppose as well when you go to a club like Manchester United, which is you know as the signing of Ronaldo showed, it is being run first and foremost as a marketing franchise, yeah. and secondly as a football club. You know because when you look at some of the talent that United have going forward, to to sort of place this, albeit enormously talented. Um, shiny necked um, player like Ronaldo in there, it, it, it just is a roadblock, you know. And like you say, that's not necessarily Solskjaer's fault. And maybe he didn't have the authority to to overrule that decision for him to come in. But he can also pick the team that he wants to pick, um, unless there's some sort of contractual thing going on there that we don't know about, <laughs> which wouldn't be a well, surprise. I, I, again, that's you know that's the 
that's the tough, if you're getting the Manchester United job, those are the sort of tough things that you have to deal with. You have to deal with the politics of, you know, maybe you mm. should go and drop Ronaldo if you're going to go and play Tottenham on, um, on Saturday. Maybe that's, and it's just, this just has to be accepted that this is, is par for the course. You know, there is so much that comes manager's way that isn't, but a simple conversation about whether or not they're good enough for the job, mm. as you say, Andrew, it's just not an unreasonable debate to have. And I, What's frustrating is it it that gets bound together with some of the unreasonable stuff that was being said to Steve Bruce. You know, mm. that's not fair. But a lot of what Newcastle fans were saying about Steve Bruce was totally fair. And the, the same, you know, the same with any manager. A lot of the stuff mm. that's said about Mikel Arteta is not fair. A lot of the people that drop into all our replies on Twitter with their weird profile pictures, that's not fair. That's not reflective of, you know, a man that's trying to do a good job in trying circumstances, but Mikel Arteta is nowhere near above criticism. That And mm. that's what kind of Neville almost demanded of Solskjaer. You can't criticise him. That yeah. was wrong. Moving on, there was a talk of the five subs rule becoming a, a permanent thing this week. And uh, I think people have quite mixed opinions on this. I saw Michael Cox um, talk about it and bemoan the fact that this is going to, who's a uh, zonal marking, of course, mm. uh, you know, that this is going to... Um, give an advantage to the biggest teams, to the richest teams. Uh, and I think that's a very, very fair point of view, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, if you've got five subs that you can use and all five of those subs are world-class players because you've got, uh, you know, strength and depth and you've got the financial resources to build a squad like that, it gives you an advantage. I know people will say, well, you know, uh, other teams can come in and they can bring on players who can, you know, deal with the talent because they've got more energy and they can, you know, add legs and those kind of things. But I do think ultimately when you've got more talent to put on the pitch at any time, it gives you a, a significant advantage. So I, I think it's an interesting um, idea. I'm curious as to your general thoughts on it before I, I grill you on a couple of specifics. I I do agree with everything Michael said. I'm conscious this isn't a Man United podcast and we've spoken a lot more about Man United mm. than Arsenal, but there was a great example in 1920. Um, oh, I remember 20, it. 1920. <laughs> not, yeah. Not 1920. <laughs> um, the FA Cup tie between Norwich and, and Man United. Uh, Norwich mm. were 1-0 up, I think. And Solskjaer just unloaded this like raft of talent off the bench. It was sort of Pogba, Rashford, you know, he'd, he named a weakened side, but it almost, it didn't matter that he mm. named a weakened side because half of it was, was changed by the, by the full-time whistle and they won it in the end. And I mean, I, I seem to remember as well in that, in that FA Cup run for Arsenal, you kind of, you just kept looking to the bench, especially in that City semi-final. And it was like, oh God, which superstar fifty million pound forward are they about to unleash on an ailing David mm. Luis right now? Um, that that will significantly spoil games. I think maybe less in the Premier League because a lot of teams have, even if they don't have five world class players on the bench, they probably have five players of commensurate quality to to the players they put on the pitch. I think in mm. you know in the Champions League in the European competitions, Premier League clubs are going to find it even easier having said that i i like it because i think it will make for more interesting football i think it this could get more tactically intriguing i mean i mentioned it i'm sure we'll come on to it, my slightly mad idea if i had to use these five subs but 
it does it does add a little bit more intrigue. I think it gives managers more that they can do. Um, it, it offers more sort of flexibility within games. And also, and this isn't an insignificant factor, you know, for Arsenal, someone like Gabriel Martinelli, um, Flo Balogun, Salah um, on Wednesday night, they're not getting chances at all because one sub you can pretty much give over to an injured player. Then one where Arteta needs to introduce someone to, to hold up the midfield and mm. then you need a, a steady pair of hands. So I think it will be a significant boost to development of young players that you can just, you know, you've got those extra sets. Sure. I mean, what, wouldn't that be an interesting aspect of it though, where if you're, or if the intention is to, you know, to try and give younger players more chances and to develop them and to give them opportunities that maybe they won't. And I think you're right to say that if you have five subs, you know, if Arsenal, imagine, are 4-0 up in a game in the 70th minute, we haven't made any changes and you've got like two or three, you know, young players on the bench, you can give them a go, you can give them some minutes, you can give them some experience. You know, maybe one of the ways of of equalising this... um would be to mandate that the third and fourth sub, or the fourth and fifth sub, for example, must be an academy player rather than your £70 million signing from the summer, your £50 million signing from the summer before, your world-class winger slash striker slash, you know, attacking midfield player that you can keep in reserve because you're Man City, because you're Manchester United, because you've got these these deep resources. You know, a club, you know, the clubs with the most money in the Premier League, you know, the Chelsea, City, Newcastle, they'll get there in the end. You know, there are teams who just cannot compete with that. But if there's some measure of equalization because you have to use uh, academy players, that might make it a little bit more fair. And it might also provide opportunities for players who, who probably aren't going to get them unless they go on loan to, you know, a championship side or something like that. Yeah. I, I'd not thought of that. I really like that idea. Um, yeah. I, I've not got many complaints. So the other one that I'd maybe heard, I've heard pitched in the past is that you can name an unlimited number of, under 21 or um, academy graduates mm. on your bench just to and maybe limit the number of of um, non-homegrown or non however you can, sure. however you want to define it you limit the number of them on the bench i think anything like that would be great you, you're going to have to make the most out of this do what you can to to redress it so that it isn't just anytime city or a goal down it's sort of like right unleash foden de bruyne all that lot on yeah. the bench yeah. You had another mad idea, which sounds, um, you know, it does sound a bit mad to me when we were talking about it before, but basically a kind of rolling subs idea. Yeah, a bit like a bit like that. Um, so partly it just comes from my mad love of um, basketball and the NBA. But I I would be intrigued as to whether so you, you allow for five changes. I think maybe you would have to do it in five blocks rather than the, the four it will be. Um, in the future, but that if you take a player off, you can bring them back on. Now, I mean, part of the reason for this, I think, is maybe the, the player welfare angle that, that we haven't discussed, but managers really like to, where if a player takes a knock or, I mean, the example I gave to you was was Ben White uh, on, mm. on Wednesday night or Tuesday night, feeling a bit of a dicky tummy. Let's get him off. Let's let him do his business, get, do his business, <laughs> whatever he needs to do. And look, you know, I'm sure this is a rule that back in the 90s, Gary Lineker would have been very in favour of. <laughs> <laughs> let's, 
let's get them out to do their business um but also to you know to to check on mm. the, the state of an injury and then you know if a manager wants they can they can re-enter the fray i mean it's something they do in in rugby as well they have you know blood subs and and things like that mm. also i think the other way to to look at it is it could be quite intriguing tactically um i know when Mikel arteta was asked some sort of questions by fans he one of the ones that he, he looked really intrigued by was the idea that substitutes might be like, you might have closers. You could have mm. a player that starts the game, ends the game. I think that would be, you know, going back to Martinelli, I, imagine how good he might be if you kind of run him at full pelt for 15 minutes, withdraw him for someone, you know, that's more possession oriented and then mm. grind the team down. Martinelli goes back in. I mean, you've used two subs to do that. So it's a risk. I, with all these things, I'd just like to see how it works. I don't know if it would work, but if someone fancies doing it in the League Cup, I'll give it a watch. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing that springs to mind for me on this, you know, the, the idea that you can use five subs. I wonder, is it a, you know, we've heard Thibaut Courtois talk about player welfare and the amount of football that they've got to play at the moment and how ultimately they're they're going to get injured, players are going to get fatigued and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem realistic to me that the people who run football, all of these vested interests with marketing deals and sponsorship deals and the more football that's on TV, the better it is for all of them. And the more games they play, the more revenue they have, the more match tickets they sell, the more merchandising they sell, all of those things. Like the the, the, the juggernaut is rolling, you know, the, the, mm. the, the rolling stone is gathering all this you know, fantastically uh, expensive dollar and a pound and euro moss as it goes downhill. They don't want to do away with any of that. So as a kind of sop to player welfare, we'll give you an extra couple of subs. And that will mean that like, you know, we, we don't have to change the schedule. We don't have to reduce the workload on the players. You can look after the players by, you know, taking them off 10 minutes before you might normally do it. You know, a guy who would play 90 minutes now is going to play 80 minutes as if that's going to make a significant <laughs> impact on his welfare. Yeah, it is, it, it, as you say, it is a slightly disingenuous way of solving the, the problem because, you know, we know there is never there are never going to be fewer games. They had a great chance to do that last season. They could have, it would have been quite a good season to give the EFL Cup a rest but that costs the EFL money. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, exactly as you put it, th there will be more games, I'm sure, in, in 10 years' time than there are now. People will be squeezing in friendly tournaments, international, whatever. So, like you say, I think maybe the next step will not be easing mm. player workload anyway. It might be seven subs. Um, it's not great. Eventually, it will get to the stage where it's it sort of turns all games into glorified friendlies. You remember, like, you know, those mid 2000s mm. games where you'd have a whole different team for the second half but yeah as you say the the one thing we can be pretty certain on is that no one with a, a financial interest in this sport is going to go yeah we're willing to sacrifice that yeah. for the good of the players no not a bit right let's talk arsenal a little bit and midweek there was a win over um leeds in the carabao cup um which i fully expected manchester city to win but of course they went out of it so the pathway is now clear for arsenal you know for uh, Mikel arteta to fully uh, assume pep guardiola's mantle in that <laughs> regard by winning the, the you think he'll the give it to him if he wins he'll just bring him guardiola his own mini league cup this was for you pep <laughs> maybe Mikel arteta will be presented with a, a pep guardiola shaped trophy uh, if we actually manage to win that which would be um something but look um 
Arsenal made nine changes. There were some players in the team who, you know, realistically don't have a great future um, in red and white. There are some young players in there, maybe not as many as people might have liked, but even with nine changes against a Leeds team who, um, you know, have been difficult to play against under Marcelo Bielsa, maybe not quite on, on Tuesday night. They weren't the, the Leeds that I had expected. 2-0 win, a clean sheet. It does keep this little bit of momentum going, um, you know, and... and when you're looking for positives, when you're looking for things to be encouraged about, I think that goes uh, in that column pretty well. Yeah, with with a game like this, I kind of was going into it thinking it's really important not to lose, actually, and therefore you know to mm. win. Um, just because things were fe- things were feeling quite positive, and I think kind of maybe one of the frustrating stories of Arteta's tenure is there hasn't been a real run. Yeah, maybe maybe in the in lockdown. Um, there was a little bit of one, but it's, you know, even if there hasn't been anything like that Emery run where you knew it was a bit false, you knew that there were issues still, but the, the players just sort of started enjoying winning and, uh, games an awful lot. And eight games now is is not insignificant. It's not a bad run of results at all. I mean, I thought there were, footballing-wise, there was very little to take. I think the fact that Leeds are both a very particular team and a team that's doing what they're doing not as well as they used to means I don't know what I take away from that. But I did really like Ainsley Maitland-Niles in yeah, midfield. I agree. I'd be intrigued to see how he gets on with Xhaka. I don't know if there'll be much time to do to try that out before um, Thomas Partey and, and Mohamed Elneny jet off. But it just sort of feels like, you know, Maitland-Niles brings the dynamism, can progress the ball up, up pitch, by, pitch by carrying. And then Xhaka's a bit more sedate, moves the ball with his passing. I'd be interested to see that. And I hope, I hope Mikel Arteta gets a chance to look at it before before half his midfield goes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the other aspect is Maitland-Niles and Lakonga and whether that could be a mm. midfield partnership that might work. They do feel a little bit similar, um, yeah. you know, in terms of the way that they play. I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but, you know, it might be a case that Thomas Partey is gone before Granit Xhaka is back from injury because they were quite clear that it was going to be 2022 for Granit Xhaka, regardless of how um, hard he works, unless they're, you know, setting the expectations um, quite high and and do expect him back a bit sooner. But even still, he's going to take a little while to get back up to speed and what have you. So it might be a case that we're going into games where there is no Xhaka, there is no Partey, there is no Elneny, which does leave... Mikel Arteta with not a great deal to choose from in that regard. Yeah, when when you put it like that, that that is just very very worrying. I I really like um, Lakonga, and there's definitely a player there that in in two three years could be a a, a consistent start. Maybe even mm. before then could be a consistent starter for Arsenal. But you know we saw against Palace, he's got to learn by making mistakes. And um, as Arteta will say we don't have time to teach people by making mistakes. So that is a really tough balancing act to, to hit. You would maybe hope that Xhaka, you're going to, I mean, they're going to have to hope that Xhaka's ahead of schedule or that some, something brings Partey mm. back early. Uh, equally, if Elneny was available, I just wouldn't bother anymore. He's a, he's a solid player. Um, he never lets you down, but I thought it was quite apparent against Leeds that he just won't pass the ball forward. <laughs> That is a fairly substantial issue, I think, for a midfield player. Like, I get the safety first thing. And I think, you know, on his best day, I think he can be a pretty useful player. But like we saw against Leeds, the limitations 
are are very obvious, you know, for a team which is trying at least to be a bit more progressive in terms of how they play. I don't know how El Nenny really fits into that. If you're talking about a earlier about a player who's a closer, I think if you're if you're two one up and there's five ten minutes to go, bring El Nenny on to press around in midfield, and that's where potentially he is he's the most useful. Um, you also mentioned Gabriel Martinelli, and I think. Tuesday was maybe a chance for him to impress, to show that, you know, he should be playing a bit more in the Premier League. I can understand why he isn't, to be honest, because, um, you know, the results have been decent um, of late. The performance is a little bit uh, inconsistent. And that, I think, uh, as you alluded to, is the next thing for Mikel Arteta is to to try and produce a bit more consistency uh, with performance levels and, and how Arsenal play. But when you've got Aubameyang up front scoring the goals that he's scoring, Smith Rowe playing basically in the position on the left-hand side where Martinelli would play otherwise, you can see why he hasn't been uh, in the team as much Um uh, I don't necessarily see this as a major, major issue. I know people like to project and say, well, he's going to be really pissed off. He's going to be annoyed. I saw that. I was watching the bench cam. When Arsenal scored the goals against Aston Villa, he looked absolutely delighted. He was tweeting about how much he likes to play, which is understandable and cool. Um, But it feels like there is a bit of a gap, as I said to James on a a Patreon podcast we did this week, uh, James McNicholas, that there's sort of a gap between where Martinelli is now and the expectations and hopes that we have projected onto him because we've seen him do some fantastic stuff in the past. There is just a little bit of a chasm there at the moment. Yeah, and and I think the hard thing is he's not earning the game time because Mm. he's not playing often enough, and therefore when he plays, he's not playing that well. I think, and we keep coming back to AFCON, it does feel like it may have a significant impact on, on Arsenal's season. But I mean, it will, may well open up opportunities, may well open minutes with no Pepe, mm. no Aubameyang. I wonder if though, after that, when the players start tripping back, is it worth getting him out on loan somewhere? It's got to be somewhere of a high standard. But I just don't, I don't think his... his 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 development is being well served as is mm. um not least because when he comes on it's often in you know desperate circumstances and he's great there you know he 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 was almost as important as Lacazette against Palace but it's not that you know he, he's coming on and it's sort of like don't show any inhibitions throw yourself to the wind it it, it doesn't we just I don't feel like we always see everything Martinelli can do and we're not seeing him in a real Arteta structure but like that's not going to come when Emil Smith Rowe is looking like one of the best young players in England. Yeah, this is not like this is a great problem to have. Um, and in the end, you know, Martinelli was a relatively low cost punt from um, from Ituano, who's easily paid back everything that was invested in him. And you know, if worse comes to worse, and you decide to move on for him, would probably earn you a lot more than the, the seven million you paid for him. Mm. So it's a good problem to have. But I, I, I would like to see him spend the second half of the season out on loan I think probably somewhere in Europe just so he plays week in week out and we get a bit more of an idea I do think I think that's interesting because um, you know like you say the AFCON is going to have a big impact on on what we can do with Aubameyang gone with uh, Pepe gone with Partey gone Uh, you know those are are, are key figures um, to varying degrees within the team and you're going to need some Variety. I think the thing with Martinelli for me is I'm not quite sure what exactly 
he is and what he's going to be. Is he going to be a, a striker? Is he going to be a wide player? I don't feel like the the skill set is necessarily there for him to thrive, certainly in the, the, the system and the, the way that we play as a sort of a possession-based winger, somebody who's going to fly up and down the left-hand side, beat his man. Um, I feel mm. like he needs to be a bit more of a of a penalty box player, which is why I think when he doesn't play, uh, it's because Aubameyang is playing. I think probably the long-term view is, is for him to be a striker, but... Um, that pathway is is quite substantially blocked when Aubameyang is playing and in the form that he's in. Yeah, I, I mean, and on that, it, it might be quite fun to see him. It, I don't know how often they'll reply, reprise this four four two, but I think him and Lacazette would be quite a fun look. I, I don't think we've really seen those two play together all that much outside a bit of, I remember them playing in the Europa League under mm. Jungberg and, and Martinelli had a great game there. But um, I think... Yeah, and I know Tim Tim Stillman. I think makes this point a lot. It is really hard to fit a lot of Arsenal's forwards in when they're quite broken play. They're not build up oriented. You know, Pepe. I think you would argue is the same. Certainly, Abamyang. And then they they need to get minutes as well. And you you can only have so many of them on the pitch at once. So, yeah, I like you. I feel like there's a lot I don't know um, about Martinelli. And a lot of this is apparently equally, you know, you want to find it out. He feels like such a, such a diamond in the rough. But um, I think we kind of, now that you know he is a potential starter, top level player, you just, you need to kind of make sure he, you see what he can do in that, in those circumstances. That won't come at Arsenal this season. It might in a few. So you need to make sure he's, he's out on loan somewhere. All right. Well, look, we'll see what happens. Who knows? He might pop up this weekend with a, a last gas winner against Leicester City, which would be very nice indeed. James, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter at James Benj, at James Benj, and he does football stuff for CBS Sports. Right, that's just about that for this week's show. We do have a big game at the weekend, of course, playing Leicester on Saturday lunchtime. There, thereabouts. Yeah, 12.30 kickoff at the King Power Stadium. A difficult place to go, as we know. But hopefully, we can continue the momentum that we've built over the last couple of weeks. If we can take as much of the Villa game into this one as possible, that would be great. Uh, we will have more discussion of the Leicester game itself over on Patreon. Lewis and I will be doing, as we always do, a Premier League preview podcast that will be available for you on Friday afternoon. So if you want to join up for that, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash arsblog. Patreon.com forward slash arsblog. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra. Hopefully it's a goodly morning. For now, though, thank you as ever for listening, for your support as always, for your comments, feedback, and all the rest of it. Much appreciated. Let's hope we have a great weekend and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Sir, I'm the manager. How can I help you? I'm Phil Neville, and I'm really upset because this employee has not done its job properly, and I demand that he is sacked. So, let me get this straight. You've walked into this shop, and you've demanded that I sack somebody. Yes, and now you all know how Oli Gunnar feels. He is a human being with feelings in a heart. How could you do this to him? Right... Are you going to sack this person, or am I going to call the police? Well, I don't know about the police, sir, but you might want to call Specsavers. This is a self-service checkout. <laughs> 